for the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. And after saying hello to our friends in Israel, I'm happy to announce that we now have a podcast as well as these videos, and of course our email newsletter, to which I again urge viewers everywhere to subscribe in case we get deplatformed for climate heresy. For instance, because I say stuff like, hey, remember the Great Barrier Reef? That gloriously photogenic natural thing that died out right after Al Gore and David Suzuki killed the polar bears? Well, it's not dead either. Quite the contrary. Marine scientist and academic freedom champion Peter Ridd reports that the Australian Institute of Marine Science says the amount of coral on the reef is now at a record high. The Guardian newspaper brushed mere facts aside to whine that the World Heritage Committee refused to put the Great Barrier Reef on its in-danger list after a global lobbying effort from Australia, rather than because the reef wasn't in danger. The point being, not only does climate change only ever cause bad things, but even bad things it doesn't cause prove it's a crisis. Now here we want to mention, the Institute's only been monitoring the reef since 1985. So to avoid being part of the crowd that says hottest year ever or least ice ever, and then you discover they only look back a few decades or a hundred years if you're lucky, we need to be clear that we don't know what the Great Barrier Reef looked like in 1485 or in the Roman Warm Period, which yes, wasn't just warmer than today, but was also a thing on both sides of the Atlantic. But we certainly did know that those past higher temperatures didn't wipe the reef out, and we know that predictions of the supposed massive human disruption of climate starting 50 years ago, or 100, or both, was turning the reef into blanched dust, were just more absurd and now exploded hype. And by the way, the people at that Marine Institute do believe in global warming, and they think it's dangerous to reefs. But they also believe their own eyes, which is surprisingly rare in this discussion. For instance, Facebook keeps warning people not to believe us, including offering a chance to see how the average temperature in your area is changing. If you want to accept their invitation to explore climate science info, you'll get such vital pseudo-information as, quote, the cause of climate change is widely agreed upon in the scientific community, and, quote, the cost of renewable energy is dropping rapidly, and, quote, overall polar bear populations are declining because of global warming, end quote. And then, in our case at least, this chart, which cunningly turns no temperature increase between 1950 and 2000, then one sudden jump and then more flatlining, into an ominous trend that's about as real as the extinction of polar bears and the Great Barrier Reef. And by the way, the high in Ottawa on the day we filmed this video, in the middle of summer, was 24 degrees Celsius. But, to return to the reef, without letting go of that chart, I want to stress the sleeper issue about when man-made climate change supposedly started, or when its harmful effects supposedly started. You might think it's obvious. Shortly after the middle of the 20th century, when the cooling trend quite visible in that Facebook chart ended. And of course, yes, much of the scary rhetoric focuses on the last 20, 40, or 60 years. But others think it was longer ago, including Facebook, which started its chart in 1950 and has it rising relentlessly. And also, advocates of regenerative agriculture which I'm not here to ridicule. I practice it in my own backyard. But in her book, Cows Save the Planet, Judith Schwartz writes, quote, oil, coal, and gas represent one source of emissions, but over time, the greater culprit has been agriculture. Since about 1850, twice as much atmospheric carbon dioxide has derived from farming practices as from the burning of fossil fuels. The rolls crossed around 1970, quote. And in Growing a Revolution, David Montgomery says, quote, By 1980, roughly a third of the carbon humanity had already added to the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution came from plowing up the world's soils, primarily in the Great Plains, Eastern Europe, and China, end quote. Both books are worth reading, including for their genuine insights about the pitfalls of treating farms as chemistry experiments, not ecosystems. 
But they're also noteworthy for the confusion they add to this important question of when global warming became real, man-made, and dangerous. And if we can't even get a straight answer on that one, how can we possibly test the theory against the facts? Speaking of facts and farms, a piece by Ian Cumming, reprinted in the regrettably named blog Small Dead Animals, makes the telling point that the alarmists say global heating will make crops fail, drought and floods sweep away the soil and its occupants, pests spread, and plants become less nutritious. Quote, but no one in Canadian agriculture, absolutely no one, whether in government, industry, bankers, or farmers, has ever said you have to pay way less for land since yields will be dramatically down over the next three decades due to climate change. End quote. Why not? because in their hearts, they know it's not so. If we were already in a climate crisis, the price of farmland should already have fallen. But market prices incorporate expectations as well as current realities. So a looming disaster should also be pushing the price down. Which means neither farmers nor woke financiers really believe, when they get to the bank, the stuff they or their umbrella organization spouted along the way. As Cumming points out, not even Mark Carney, when he was a central banker, ever warned lenders back away from the farm loans. If the alarmists really disagree with me here, they can short Canadian grain. But instead, they buy waterfront mansions while throwing billions in public funds at a crisis they wouldn't spend a dime of their own cash on. Seems money talks. We also return to the floods in Germany, which have mercifully subsided, but leaving a sticky residue of excuses disguised as alarmism. Of course, Germany's been having floods, and marking them on walls, for centuries. But it's a bit of a new thing that, as one meteorologist said bluntly, Germany has long been a failed state when it comes to protecting people from natural catastrophes, end quote. And Chancellor Merkel showed extraordinary gall in saying, quote, we must hurry, we have to be faster in the fight against climate change, end quote. And not only because the alarmist's own models say that nothing we do today at any speed will have any measurable impact before 2100. No, the really sticky point is that when her government and others in Germany were warned that heavy rains were coming, dams were full and floods were looming, they didn't show any hurry even to warn people, let alone evacuate them. Now, to be fair, people don't seem to have been much of a mood to heed warnings or prepare. Some even hid from floodwaters in their basements. But at least that conduct only hurt them, whereas hiding behind rhetoric about climate change killed other people. So yes, in some sense, global warming was to blame for the disaster. Not because it caused flooding, but because it diverted time energy, and money away from disaster preparedness into nebulous virtue signaling. Now, on the positive side, it seems that awareness of this problem is to some extent penetrating into the world of alarmism. In the National Post, one commentator took the orthodox line saying, quote, the world is awash in reports of catastrophes attributed to climate change. In that category, he included floods in Europe, but then he asked, why won't we listen? And if you're planning to say, oh, because the reports are wrong about the cause of the data, he won't listen to that. He thinks most people are sold on the alarmism, but he says they, quote, doubt the ability of those supposedly in the know, the politicians, activists, campaigners, and professional doom merchants to identify workable and practical solutions and put them into effect, end quote. And then he adds that people, quote, don't have much trust in a media that seems addicted to hysteria and shockingly immune to ideas they don't hold, end quote. Gee, we wonder why. And then he went on to cite California, said it's a classic case of a super woke place whose practical response on climate has been feeble. But then he said, quote, the trick is to figure out how to cut emissions from those sources without crippling the economies they underpin. So far, no one has found the key, end quote. And here we have to point out that that includes him. He does admit that the most extreme solutions only appeal to what he calls demented extremists. But then he's got nothing less drastic to offer that might work. 
you know, as an aside, as professional and amateur chefs discover plans to shut off their natural gas stoves, there's a pushback shaking the city councils of the wise, which gives you some idea how much genuine popular buy-in there is on fighting climate change. And for those still wondering why, Tunku Varadarajan cites noted science writer Matt Ridley's distinction between science as a philosophy and science as an institution. Because when people like President Biden say, I believe in science, or the Post writer says, the science is legitimate, they're not referring to the process of rational inquiry seeking to disprove hypotheses. They're talking about an orthodoxy enforced by scorn and ritual humiliation of dissenters, which is something ordinary people find distasteful for obvious reasons, including but not limited to its hypocrisy. If alarmists want to restore credibility, we think they should stop peddling junk about increases in extreme weather. But if that's too much to ask, it would be nice if, after telling us the planet's ablaze, they could point to a working fire extinguisher, or at least tell us which corridor it's meant to be in. And speaking of junk weather, we continue University of Guelph professor Ross McKittrick's look at Stephen Coonan's landmark book, Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, What It Doesn't, and Why It Matters, in this case with a look at Coonan's take on trends in hurricanes, wildfires, floods, and so on. And Coonan's take is that journalists and politicians are distorting government reports that themselves distorted the underlying data, while institutions, including the National Academy of Sciences, that were meant to stop this kind of thing, stood by silently. Finally, as always, we present a couple of items from CO2Science.org. The first asking what would happen to agriculture if we really did manage to lower atmospheric CO2 by looking at how some wild forerunners of modern C3 and C4 photosynthesis crops responded to the last glacial maximum level of 180 parts per million and the pre-industrial 270. The result was dramatic declines in yield, which if it happened again would mean hunger and death. The other took a narrower and more hopeful look at what was likely to happen to Canadian crop production if CO2 kept rising, and found that contrary to the usual alarmism about surging pests, wilting crops, and nutrient loss, it would be hugely beneficial. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. Subscribe to the podcast and the newsletter.